got your Bibles, and I hope that you do uh, turn in them to John's Gospel. During this Advent season, we have been walking through the prologue to John's Gospel, the first 14 verses or so. And these have been great reminders to us of the person and nature of Christ, this, this one who was born, whom we celebrate his birth at Christmas. These have been great reminders of who he is and what he's done and what his nature is like. And of course, they will culminate next Sunday on Christmas Eve when we look at verse 14, which is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So two weeks ago, we covered the first three verses where John writes, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. We learn there that Jesus is the Logos. He, he is the, the eternal word of God. The, the revelation or the revealing of God to man is Jesus. We learn that Jesus is eternal, that he didn't have a beginning because John says in the beginning he already was. We learn that Jesus himself is God, that we cannot separate the baby in the manger from his divinity as God, that he, along with the Father and the Spirit, are one, co-equal in, in divinity and eternally existing in three persons. And we learn that Jesus is creator, that this child who was born in an animal stall and laid in a manger is in fact the creator of the world. Last week, Jonathan covered the next few verses, verses 4 through 9, and I'm so thankful for Jonathan being flexible to step in for me so that I could go on a moment's notice, really, just found out the week before that my younger brother was going to be baptized. And it was such, such an honor and a privilege to be able to be there with he and his family and, and his new church family and to celebrate new life uh, with him. It's just so grateful and so thankful for Jonathan, he was going to preach this passage, and so he was flexible to, to pivot and cover last week. But we, cut, we, we looked last week in verses 4 through 9 and saw that, that not only was the Word in the beginning, the Word was God, but the Word was the light, the light of the world, which means that he is the source of life, because the light was the life of man, John says. And so this meant spiritual life for those who were spiritually dead. It meant light for those who were in darkness. And that the, the, the darkness did not overcome the light. As he said in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, this Jesus, the pre-existent Logos, was shining, was shining before there was a world, was shining in creation when he walked in this world, and he's still shining today. And the darkness tried everything it could to, to overcome that light, but it failed. And it couldn't overcome the light. And instead of the light being overcome by the darkness, the darkness was overcome by the light because this baby that was born in a manger would one day grow up and die on a wooden cross to defeat forever sin and death and darkness. And this brings us to this morning's passage in verses 10 through 13. So far in John's prologue, we've 
primarily been looking at the nature of Christ, who he is, and what he's done. As the eternal logos and the light of the world. But in this morning's passage, John is going to connect that to the very real condition of man. And specifically, he will assert this, that this eternal logos stepped into the world that he made so that sinful men like us who are walking in darkness and spiritually dead could be made into children of God. And so that is what this passage is about. So let's read. We're going to focus on verses 10 through 13. But by way of context, I want to start with verse 9 where we left off last week and read through verse 14. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious time of year it is as we pause during Advent to look back and consider how in your divine and sovereign wisdom you split time and space to send your Son. To put on flesh, to become one of us, to experience life in a fallen world, to live the righteous life that we never could in a thousand lifetimes, and to die on a cross in the place of us so that we might be reconciled back to you. What a glorious thought is the nativity when God became man and father we ask that you'd speak to us now through your words so that we might understand why you did that and what our response to that must be if we are to be your children pray this in Jesus name amen I don't have a very complicated outline for you this morning. It's really a pretty straightforward passage. John is contrasting those who reject the eternal logos with those who receive the eternal logos, that is Jesus. But the emphasis in this passage is more on those who receive the word. And John is telling us that it is these, those who received eternal logos, that Jesus came to save. And he saves them by making them into his children, by making them to become children of God. He identifies here those who do not receive the word as first the world in general and then his own people, the Jews in particular, 
And he identifies those who receive the word. They're identified as those who become the children of God. So let's talk first about those who do not receive the word. This is in verses 10 and 11. Those who do not receive the word. In verse 10, we see the word world over and over again. This is a theme throughout John's gospel. We see it three times in this one verse. The world, the the cosmos. And this really is a continuation of the thought from verse 9, where he said, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was coming into the cosmos. This was a foreshadowing of verse 14 that we'll cover next week when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is, a, this is a looking forward to the incarnation. The word was coming into the world, this true light. So this pre-existent eternal logos was leaving heaven and coming into the world. But here in verse 10, um, John gives us three things to describe or three ways to describe Jesus' relationship to the world. He first says that he was in the world, which of course is a reference to the incarnation of God as man. But the way that he puts this, he was in the world, insinuates that this was no quick stopover for Jesus. This, This wasn't just a pit stop. He came to stay. He he came to pitch his tent with us. He came to dwell with us, as verse 14 will say. He dwelt among us to rescue us. Secondly, he says that the world was made through him. So John reminds us here in language very similar to what he said in verse 3, that this word that came into the cosmos was in fact the creator of the cosmos. And then thirdly, he says, yet the world did not know him. And and the the, the grammar and the structure of John's sentence here is, is meant to convey that this is strange, that this is somehow unfitting, that there's something wrong about, not right about this. The creator of the universe condescends to enter the very universe that he created and when he gets there he's not even recognized they don't even know him the word know there in verse 10 is more than just an intellectual knowledge more than just an intellectual understanding or comprehension has more to do with an intimate knowledge an intimate knowing someone so it wasn't just that the world, and, 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 and by this point, he's not just referring to the, to the physical world that he created, but, but more particularly, mankind himself. So it's not just that, that mankind didn't know who he was, but they didn't know him. They were indifferent about him, dismissive of him, unconcerned about him. They rejected him they sidelined him and yet he was their maker as john's writing this he 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 wants the reader to read this and be both incredulous and at the same time self-reflective incredulous at how they back then that those people didn't know him how, how they were dismissive of jesus 
How could they? John wants the reader to ask. But also self-reflective. That we ought to consider how we might be dismissive of Jesus as well. How could we? John also wants his reader to ask. Church, are we sometimes in our daily lives and in our walk, are we sometimes indifferent to the reality of who Jesus is? Incredibly, we can go about our daily lives and we can take him for granted. Knowing that he is God, but living as if it doesn't really matter in our daily lives. An odd kind of spiritual indifference to Jesus. And even more incredibly, this can be true even during this season that we're meant to think on him and remember him. How is it that in our Christmas traditions and celebrations, how might we in our, our parties and gift givings and other traditions, not that those are bad or wrong, but, but as we go about them, how might we be being dismissive of Christ and the reality of who Jesus is and the significance of what it meant when God literally split time and space and entered, inter, interjected His Son into the world. One of the primary purposes of God becoming man is that, is that man might know Him, that man might know His Creator. So let's make sure that we're not taking Him for granted, not, not being dismissive of Him or indifferent to Him, but instead seeking to know Him more and more. The Creator that has entered into creation so that we might know Him. Friend, do you know Him? Do you know this Jesus? Do you know Him better today than you did last Christmas? If we're wrestling with the reality of who Jesus is, we will be growing in our knowledge of Him. But then in verse 11, John seems to narrow the focus from all of humanity in verse 10 to his own chosen people in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so not only does John transition here from the world, all of humanity in verse 10, to his own people in verse 11, but he also makes another transition. He also transitions from knowing the Logos in verse 10 to receiving the Logos in verse 11. And these transitions here, these transitions are not so much a, a, a contrast as they are a, a, a narrowing of the focus, focusing the, this more narrowly. And so the focus narrows from the world to his own chosen people, Israel. And in the same way, the focus narrows from knowing the Logos to receiving the Logos. And so knowing the Logos involves and requires receiving the Logos. If you want to know the Logos, we must start by receiving the Logos. So what is meant by receiving this Logos? If you're to look up that word in a lexicon, the, the word for receive, um, 
incredibly, means to receive. It means to take. It means to accept, to receive. That's the dictionary definition. But the question here is, how does one do it? How does one receive? And furthermore, why must one receive the Lagos? Well, those questions are answered as we continue on in verse 12. Verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So here's, here's where he pivots from talking about those who do not receive the Logos to those who do receive the Logos. So some will reject, but not all. Some will receive the Logos. And he says in verse 12 that, that all who received him believed in his name. And so knowing is receiving, and receiving is believing. And it's probably not a surprise to you that the word for believe here is the Greek word pistuo, which is the verb form of the noun, which is translated in our English Bibles as faith, pistis. It's the same word in the Greek, the same root word. We, we, we cannot separate Faith and believing biblically, because they are the same root word in the Greek. Believe is the verb and faith is the noun. Such that if we could turn faith into a verb in English, then we would translate verse 12 as, but to all who did receive him, who faithed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So let's put the key thoughts from Verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12 together to help us understand John's trajectory here. In verse 10, he says that, that he came into the world that he made, but the world didn't know him. Verse 11, incredibly, he came even to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. And so knowing involves and requires, in some sense, receiving him, such that those who don't receive him don't know him. And then verse 12, but, but some did. Some did receive him. And what marked them out as those who received him was that they believed in his name. They faithed him. They put their faith in Jesus. And so knowing the Logos, not just knowing who he is, but knowing him as God, knowing him as king, knowing him as Lord and Redeemer, requires that we receive the Logos, that we take Him, that we receive and accept Him as our God, our King, our Lord, and our Redeemer. And this requires believing, faithing in His name, placing our faith that this Jesus, this Christ child, lived as one of us, lived as a man perfectly without sin, Achieving the righteousness that we must have if we are to be reconciled to God. And that, they, that he went to a cross defeating sin and death forever for those who trust in him. And so knowing him requires receiving him. And receiving him requires believing in his name. Faithing in his name. And so what is the result of faithing in Jesus? What is the result of believing on Jesus the end of verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right 
to become children of God. That is glorious. He gave the right to become children of God. Now, this presumes that not everyone is a child of God. Only those who put their faith in Jesus. Only those who are given the right to become children of God. But even they are not children of God before they put their faith in Jesus, in, in, in the Word, in, in, their, in Jesus. At that point, they are given the right to become children of God. You know, in our day, it's, it's almost a cultural axiom to say and agree that everyone is a child of God. Now, that sounds great. Sounds very inclusive, and our world probably likes, probably likes that. But biblically, it just isn't true. Not everyone is a child of God. Now, everyone is made in the image of God. And if that is what is meant by that phrase, then fine. But, but not everyone is a child of God. In fact, none of us are before we put our faith in Jesus as Lord. Only then are we given the right to become children of God. It reminds me of the angels who meet with the shepherds who are keeping watch over their flocks by night on the night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What do the angels sing when they show up on that dark hillside outside of Bethlehem? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Not peace to everyone. Not peace to all men. Not peace to all the earth, but on the earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And who are they? With whom is God pleased? Those who believe in his Son. Those who receive his Son. Those who know his Son. With them God is pleased. And so to them, the angels say, is peace. And to them is given the right to become children of God. And note that we must be given this right. Which means that we don't have this right before it's given to us. We can't make ourselves one of God's children. We we can't do enough good to earn his favor and to earn salvation. We can't self-help our way out of this darkness that we're in. We can't clean ourselves up enough to remove the stain of our sin. If we could, then Jesus would not have had to come and live as one of us and die in our place on the cross. But he did so that we might be given the right to become children of God. What a beautiful picture of adoption this is. We get, church, we get to be in God's family. We get to be his kids. We who had turned against him, we who are mired in sin, turning the other way, going the opposite direction of him, rejecting him, We who are hopeless in our darkness, 
We get the right because of what Jesus did, because God split time and space, because he sent his son, because Jesus obeyed and took on flesh, became one of us, lived as a man, died in our place, rose from the dead. Now we who are sinners and enemies of God, we get to be adopted into his family. We get to be one of God's kids. It's incredible. Now, there may be some outside these walls who might say, I don't know if I want to be in God's family. I don't think I want to be adopted by him. Well, if someone says that they don't want to be in God's family, if they would rather stay in darkness and in sin, then they will not be adopted by God. And they will get what they want, independence from God, both in this life and in the next. Problem is, they don't really know what they're wanting. But we who have been adopted into God's family, we remember what it was like to be an orphan, to be in darkness, to walk in darkness, blinded by sin, to be dead spiritually because we don't have the light of life. We remember that. And so we are so thankful and eternally grateful that God sent the light into the world to bring the light of life to mankind. And we believed in his name, which means that we trusted and who Jesus was, and we trusted that his finished work on the cross was sufficient to pay for my sins, our sins. And on the basis of that belief, on the basis of faith in Christ, we were given the right to become children of God. And as those who were adopted into his family, we now receive an inheritance as co-heirs, all the, all the heirs of God will receive that which, Paul, which, which Peter will write about in his first letter, which is imperishable, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's what we get as we're adopted into his family. But here's the question that we must wrestle with and the question that John helps us wrestle with in this prologue. How do men and women who are locked in the darkness of their own sin, blinded by their own depravity, spiritually dead, how in the world will that person come to faith in Jesus and believe in his name? And that's where verse 13 comes into play. Verse 12, he's talking about those who, who did receive him. They believed in his name. They faithed in him. And they were given the right to become children of God. Now verse 13 says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the one who believes in Jesus, who puts their faith in his redeeming work at Calvary, is one who must be born, born of God. When I was born into the world, 
I became a child of Harrison and Dixie Rucker. Those are my mom and dad's names. When I was born, I became their child. Physical birth brought, made me a part of their family. But in order for me to be in God's family, I needed to be born again. And since I was already physically born, this, this new birth was not a physical rebirth. It was a spiritual rebirth. And the one who is born again in this way is the one who believes in Jesus and is given the right to become a child of God, adopted into God's family. As we know, John later famously records a conversation that Jesus has between himself and one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is confused when Jesus says that he must be born again to enter into God's kingdom So Jesus says to him in verses 5 and following, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so John is talking there. Jesus is talking there. John records him talking about those who are born of the Spirit or born by the Spirit, born spiritually. You see, when I was born physically, I didn't do anything to cause that. It just happened to me. Right? I I, I was not the, the... agent of causation in that it just happened and i'm very glad that it did happen right and when i was reborn spiritually in 1984 i didn't do anything to cause that either the spirit did that in me the point is that in neither one of those births was i the agent of causation i wasn't the one that triggered things god was God did this, and I am supremely glad that he did. And I think that's exactly what John is telling us here in verse 13. He's talking about those who believed on Jesus, who put their faith in Jesus. They were given the right to become children of God. They are those who, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's three denials there and one affirmation. Three ways in which we're not born again and one way in which we are. First, he says that this new birth into God's family doesn't happen by a blood birth. He says it's not of blood, which conveys that that nobody is a Christian because of their bloodline. It doesn't matter if you're a, a child of Abraham and Sarah or you're a, you're a child of Harrison and Dixie Rucker. It doesn't matter. You are not a Christian because of who your parents are. Secondly, this spiritual rebirth, he says, is not by the will of the flesh, which I believe is a reference to procreation. So it's not a matter of being born physically again. As Nicodemus rightly says, how can I be physically born again? Thirdly, he 
He says the spiritual rebirth is not by the will of man. In other words, we're not born again merely by an exercise of our will. Just as there was no exercise of my will to be born physically to Harrison and Dixie's family, so there was no exercise of my will to whereby I was born spiritually into God's family. Whether whether it was a free will or it was a will that was in bondage to sin, it was not the exercise of my will that caused the birth. It was something that God did. And then there's one affirmation. So three denials and one affirmation. And the affirmation is that those who believe and are given the right to become a children of God are those who are born of God. They're born of the Spirit, as John writes. So two things are necessary in order for us to be adopted into God's family. One, new birth. We must be born Again, spiritually. We must be made alive spiritually. Secondly, repentance and faith, which is not two things. It's one thing. It's our response to the good news of the gospel. The new birth is a work of the Spirit. Repentance and faith is our work. It's, it's, it's our response to the gospel. So which comes first? Well, I think a reading of Scripture will tell us that the new birth comes first. This same John will later write in his first epistle, in 1 John 5, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now notice in that verse that the verb believe is in the present tense. It's ongoing in the present and The word for born is in the perfect tense. We don't have the perfect tense in English, but in the Greek perfect tense, it refers to something that is done and finished in the past. It's happened, it's done with, it's over. It's, It's more akin to our past tense. So everyone who is believing, has believed that Jesus is the Christ, they've been born again. They were born again. In other words, it's the new birth, being born of the Spirit, that enables one to believe. I think we can show from the Apostle Paul that this is certainly how he understands this. He writes in Ephesians 2, verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now he's writing to people who can read, and because they can read, they're alive physically. So he's not talking about physical death. Talking about spiritual death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to say, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Then he summarizes, By grace you've been saved through faith. You were dead, and God made you alive with Christ. And then he summarizes this in, of course, verses 8 and 9 that we know. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, referring to faith, is not of yourselves. It, also referring to faith, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. According to God's sovereign grace, it is the new birth, being born of the Spirit, that enables us to be able to believe on Christ, be justified, and be given the right to become a child of God. 
Otherwise, we could not and we would not place our faith in Christ. Now, in this prologue here, why, why do you think it is that, that John is compelled as he begins to record his gospel account here in this prologue to assert that the eternal Logos, Jesus the Christ, is not only the giver of spiritual life, but that he is the very initiator of spiritual activity in the heart of sinful man. I think it is so that we might glory in the mighty lengths to which our Redeemer has gone to rescue sinners like us. The testimony of John is that we were in darkness, blinded by our sin. We were spiritually dead. And in that condition, friend, we didn't just need a moral example to follow. We didn't just need a good teacher to educate us or a, or a spiritual guide to show us the way. We needed someone to give us life. We, we need someone who could take what was dead and make us alive. And that's what Jesus did. John is calling for at least three responses to this passage. Number one, he asks, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with this Jesus? Will you reject him, dismiss him? Be indifferent about him, or will you receive him? Do you want to know him? Do you want to be in his family, or do you want to remain in your sin and your self-rule? What will you do with Jesus? Secondly, he's calling us to believe. He's calling us to respond in faith in Jesus. Listen, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether new life precedes faith in Jesus, as I've explained, or whether faith in Jesus precedes new life. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Either way, you must believe on Christ. There is absolutely no adoption into God's family as one of his children without a full and complete trust in Jesus Christ as God, King, Lord, and Redeemer. There must be biblical faith. And biblical faith is trusting in Jesus and nothing else. Not faith in Jesus plus works. Not faith in Jesus plus church attendance. Not faith in Jesus plus baptism. Not faith in Jesus plus anything else. Faith in Jesus and what he accomplished plus nothing. That's biblical faith. Secondly, biblical faith involves turning from sin and self-rule. It involves repentance. Because we are blinded by sin, because we are dead in our sin, because we are headed headlong to hell, there must be a turn if we are to put our faith in Jesus. So biblical faith presumes a turning from sin, rejecting of self-rule, and turning to Jesus and his rule over us. So have you believed on Jesus in this way? Have you put your faith in Christ? If not, then friend, can I just ask you, what is keeping you from trusting in him today?
What's keeping you from trusting in Christ today? If, if faith is a gift of God, as, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, if, if faith in Jesus is a gift from God, then, then, friend, why not ask him to give you that gift this morning? Just pray a prayer and ask, ask God to give you that gift. Lord, would you grant to me the gift of faith to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God in flesh, that he did go to the cross and he did pay the sins for sinners like me, and that his death and his resurrection is sufficient to reconcile me back to you. Pray for that faith. Ask him to give you that gift. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, then I think this part of John's prologue here prompts us to glorify God for his glorious and gracious work in adopting us into his family. He left a perfect home. He left paradise to come down here And to be one of us, to put on flesh. He condescended himself to take the form of a man, even a servant. To come here on a rescue mission to save those who had rejected him. Sinners like us who are walking in darkness, blinded by sin, spiritually dead, in need of life. And he brought light into our darkness. He restored our sight. As the hymn says, I once was blind, but now I see. And he took what was dead and he made us alive. And being made alive by the Spirit, he further granted us the faith to believe on his Son to trust in his finished work on the cross. And upon that faith, we are justified and we become children of God. We are adopted into his family and we become co-heirs with Christ. And if that doesn't cause your heart to erupt in praise, I don't know what will. I want to close by hearing this kind of heart from the Apostle Paul as he glories in the work of God and adopting sinners like us into his family. He says in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear and feel the tone of worship there, the heart of worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be him. And what compels that heart of praise and worship? He says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the universe he has given to his own. But then he makes it particular in verse 4. He says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, Through Jesus Christ. And so what causes this eruption of praise and worship in the heart of the Apostle Paul is to consider 
that the hatching of God's plan of redemption to choose him to be a part of, his, of God's family was a plan that was hatched before the foundation of the world. Not looking at Paul and foreseeing any merit in him, but simply by his sovereign grace and mercy saying, he will be mine. I will overcome sin and I will overcome his depravity and I will make him my own. And this erupts in Paul in praise and worship. And he says that this happens according to the purpose of his will. This was God's sovereign plan. And it happened according to his will, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, according to Paul, not only should we respond to our being graciously and mercifully adopted into God's family with praise and worship. Not not, not only should we respond to that with worship, but the mere fact that we are adopted into his family by his sovereign grace is itself to the praise of his glorious grace because of all that it required to do that, all that it took to make that happen. The plan to make us his his own that was hatched in the Godhead before the foundation of the world and then the execution of that plan which required the condescension of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus. All of that to transform spiritually dead enemies into spiritually reborn children of His. Paul says all of this is to the praise of His glorious grace. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Father, full of grace and truth. The baby in a manger is a king. He is God who became one of us to live for us, to die in our place, defeating sin and death forever. What will you do with him? Will you trust in Christ alone to save you? And brother and sister, if you have, then resolve to live today and tomorrow and the rest of your tomorrows, glorifying God for what he has done to rescue you from what you and I deserve. And further resolve to tell others this glorious good news. Let's pray. Father, we were in darkness. And the reality is it was a darkness of our own choosing. We chose to go our own way. We chose to make our own path. We chose to cross over the boundary that you had set for us. And so we were in darkness. And we needed light. We were dead. And we needed life. And so you sent the word. You sent the eternal logos. 
to break into time and space on this grand rescue mission to rescue sinners like us. Father, we pray that you're working that rescue mission right now. That you're effecting that rescue in the hearts of lives of individuals at this very moment. That you are by your sovereign grace causing new birth. And we long to see the manifestation of that, Lord, as they respond in repentance and faith and trust in Jesus. Oh God, do that. Do that among us. Do that through us. Father, may the remainder of this Advent season and and into the next year, Lord, may we be marked as a people who are just overwhelmed by the grace that you have shown us in Christ. May we ground ourselves in the gospel and live from that place each and every day. Not moving on from it, not graduating from it, but living and moving in it. And Father, use us. Use us as you continue your rescue mission to the nations. Gather for yourself your people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language for your own glory. Use us in that mission, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.